years now of being pastor here, and, and there are also questions that um, I have been asked previously, and uh, I want to try to, to teach some things from God's Word that will answer some of those questions. Uh, some I've been asked uh, in the last few months here a couple, two or three times, and um, by way of us kind of growing in Scripture. I, I don't know that this is one of those life-changing truths tonight, uh, or that it will be uh, one of those things that just really motivates and stirs us to get out and serve the Lord. Uh, I don't know that it'll be a real convicting message as far as trying to uh, expose the, the faults that we have and the sin in our life and getting those things right, but pr- really probably more along the lines of instructing us from God's Word in a few things uh, that I think are, are helpful for us to know and to understand. And so we're going to take a few Wednesday nights to do this. Tonight I'm going to deal with a couple of topics, Lord willing, if we get enough time to get through uh, all of them. But um, the first one I'm going to deal with is how were the Old Testament saints saved? How were they saved? I've been asked that a number of times. Um, are they saved the way that we get saved? Was there a different way for them to be saved? And so I'm going to do my best to use Scripture tonight and show you what the Bible has to say about it. I, I really don't think you guys want to know my opinion on it because it, it's really not worth a whole lot. But we do want to know what the Bible says about it. All right, So we're going to take some time to look at that. Uh, I'm going to begin with um, using Abraham as an illustration. I think Abraham is probably one of the ones that uh, most clearly is defined as to how he was able to obtain righteousness in God's sight. And uh, so we're going to start in Genesis chapter number 15, if you will, verse number 6. Genesis chapter number 15 and verse number 6. The Bible says, And he believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. And he believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. Now, uh, let me try to give you a quick and a brief timeline, because this is going to help us with both this question and the next question that I'm going to try to deal with tonight, um, and that is that there was the uh, there was Old Testament, and we know about that, uh, and then there was Calvary, and then we have what's called the New Testament. Now, understand that even during the life of Christ, up until Calvary happened, it was still technically Old Testament. Uh, they were still under the law at that point. Redemption had not taken place uh, on Calvary. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about that in the next question that we deal with tonight. And our Bible is broken into two sections, the Old Testament and the New Testament. And um, it's interesting to me that even in the Gospels, as we get to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, those four books specifically are still Old Testament books until you get to the end of them. Uh, and it's not until we get to the end of them that they become New Testament books um, when we get to Calvary. And uh, so a lot of discussion has come about, uh, in fact, I was listening to one fellow here just recently uh, on a different topic. It wasn't even on this topic. And he alluded to the fact that Old Testament saints were saved by the works of the law. Uh, the problem is there's a few issues that I have with that <coughs> in Scripture. One of them being the verse that says, by the works of the law shall no man be justified, not just the New Testament saints, but no man. Uh, so we certainly know that it's not the works of the law that saved them. But we find here in Genesis chapter number 15 and verse number 6 that because Abraham believed in the Lord, 
that he counted it to him for righteousness. Now, if you will turn over with me to Romans chapter number 4. And even though this is a New Testament book, it's going to deal uh, with an Old Testament uh, uh, portion of Scripture. Again, reflecting back to the time of Abraham. Romans chapter number 4. And uh, we're going to read through this entire chapter because it's very, very clearly taught, I think, in this particular chapter, uh, that Old Testament saints were saved the same way that we are. Um, we, looked, we looked back to the cross as something that has already been done. They looked forward to the coming of the Messiah and the payment for sin. Look with me in chapter number 4. We'll begin in verse number 1. Paul says, What shall we say then? That Abraham our father, as pertaining to the flesh, hath found. For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. For what saith the Scripture? In other words, he says, this is what the Bible says, is what he's saying there. Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now, to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Again, keeping it in the context of Old Testament, this is speaking here of Abraham. Even as, notice this, David, who's another Old Testament example, also describeth the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness. What are the next two words? Without works. So again, Old Testament saints, they don't earn this righteousness of God by their works. In fact, we find out later on that the the law was to be the schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. Verse number 7, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Cometh this blessedness then upon the circumcision only? In other words, is this only for the Jews? Or upon the uncircumcision also. For we say that faith was reckoned to Abraham for righteousness. How was it then reckoned when he was in circumcision or in uncircumcision? Not in circumcision, but in uncircumcision. In other words, God reckoned the righteousness to Abraham before he was circumcised, didn't he? Alright? So this is not just for the circumcision. This is for all Old Testament saints. And he, verse number 11, received the sign of circumcision, a seal, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had yet being uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all them that believe, though they be not circumcised. So again, dealing with Old Testament saints that believed, but were not circumcised. That righteousness might be imputed unto them also. Who's he speaking of here as them also? The uncircumcised, right? So again, it's possible for the Old Testament saints to have righteousness imputed to them also, not by works, but by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the father of the circumcision to them who are of uh, are not of the circumcision only, but who also walk in the steps of that faith of our father Abraham, which he had yet being uncircumcised. For the promise that he should be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if they which are of the law be heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of none effect. Because the law worketh wrath. For where no law is, there is no transgression. Therefore it is of faith 
that it might be by grace to the end that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not to that only which is of the law, but to that also which is of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. In other words, if you have the same faith that Abraham had, you can have your sins imputed uh, to you as well if you're an Old Testament saint. It does not uh, pertain to just the Jews. Verse 17, as it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations, before him whom uh, he believed, even God, who quickeneth the dead and calleth those things which be not as though they were. Who against hope believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations according to that which was spoken. So shall thy seed be. And being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead when he was about a hundred years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief but was strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully persuaded that what he had promised he was able to also to perform, and therefore it was imputed to him for righteousness. If we say that somebody has been fully persuaded that what God has promised he will also do, could we not say that that is faith? That is faith, isn't it? That's just believing that what God said He would do, He's going to do. And the Bible says in verse number 22, And therefore, in other words, because of this faith, it was imputed to Him for righteousness. Now it is not written for His sake alone that it was imputed to Him, but for us also to whom it shall be imputed. So He's giving us this illustration to let us who are on this side of Calvary to know that we are saved the same way they were saved, and that is by faith. If we believe on Him that raised up Jesus, our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. If you ever have somebody try to tell you that the Old Testament saints were saved by works, there are so many scriptures that teach us that it is not by works, that the works of the law could no man be justified. In fact, not even by the shedding of the blood of the calves and goats, was it? That was just a uh, sign that was given as men placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That was their expression of their faith, saying we are looking forward to the day when there will be one sacrifice. So, how were the Old Testament saints saved? (laughs) Same way we are, by faith. They just believed God. They knew that there was going to one day come a Messiah that would deliver. Now, the Bible talks uh, about a couple of different things. It talks about the remission of sin. I've never really, until I started studying for this lesson and getting this together, uh, I'd never really made the distinction between this. But it's, it appears to me from Scripture, and, and again, I, if, if somebody says, no, I don't see that in Scripture, I'm not going to fight them on this. But it appears to me that uh, remission was given in the Old Testament for sins. And the word remission is the idea of forgiveness or pardon. Um, And uh, that this is something that was given in the Old Testament, and it still continues into the New Testament. We get remission of our sins. Without the shedding of blood, the Bible says, there is no what? Remission of sins. And so they would sacrifice in the Old Testament by faith, signifying and showing their faith in the sacrifice that was to come, And that would give them pardon or forgiveness of sin and remission of sin. However, redemption was not fulfilled, and that's a different word, until Calvary. Redemption means to pay the pardon or to pay the price, to buy back. 
And until the price had been paid, redemption had not fully been fulfilled or realized. It was something that was being hoped for, but the redemption uh, started at Calvary again, and we're going to see that in just a minute in the book of Hebrews. That brings me to my second question. Where did the Old Testament saints go when they died? This has been a question I've had some people ask me recently, in fact. Where did the Old Testament saints go when they died? So I'm going to give you um, the explanation, and then we're going to look at some scriptures together. The first place we're going to turn to is Luke chapter number 16. Again, keep in mind that Luke 16, at the point that, that we're at in this book, we are still Old Testament at this point. Calvary has not yet taken place. All right? Luke chapter number 16. Look with me in verse number 19. <clears throat> there was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus which was laid at his gate full of sores and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores, and it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. By the way, <clears throat> when we die uh, at this point in time, our bodies uh, go into the ground, we're buried, and our souls uh, go to wherever it is that they're going to go based on if we're saved or not. And we'll talk a little bit about that. In verse number 23, And in hell he lifted up his eyes. Notice this, speaking of the rich man. What's the next phrase here? He lifted up his eyes what? Being in torments. Now keep that in mind. And seeth Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And said, Lazarus, he may dip the tip of his finger in water to cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. And beside all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. Then he said, I pray thee therefore, Father, thou would send him to my father's house, for I have five brethren, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. So we find here in verse number uh, 25, that Lazarus is also in a place, but when it describes the place that Lazarus is in, it says, and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is what? He's what? He's comforted. So we have two different places here. We have a place that is a place of torment. We have a place that is a place of comfort. Now, the Bible calls it here in Luke chapter number 16, Abraham's bosom. There's a few things we know about Abraham's bosom. It is separate from, but located in near proximity to, this place of torment that is spoken of for several reasons. Uh, one, they can see each other. Two, they can speak to each other. There is also the idea that there is a great gulf that is fixed between them and that they cannot pass from one side to the other. Now, we're going to look at some other scriptures, so I'm going to share something with you. And if you've never heard this before, hang in there. We'll show it to you from Scripture. But I've got to lay it out for you to, to get started and to kind of launch off, uh, off of this. There were two places in the heart of the earth uh, before the time of Calvary. One was a place of torment. The Bible refers to it here in Luke 16 as hell. 
There was also a place called Abraham's bosom. We'll find a minute in a few minutes. It also was called paradise. Uh, and this place is in a close proximity to, but separate from, uh, this place of torment. Um, if you will, take your Bibles and turn with me to Luke chapter number 23, just a few chapters over. By the way, let me just say this. Um, our bodies get buried when we die. However, Luke chapter 16, we believe to be a literal true story of, of two actual men. These are not uh, symbolic stories. There are some unique things about the story. They both have some sort of indestructible bodies. Because there are eyes, because the rich man saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. There was a tongue. There was a finger, obviously. Um, there was the concept of water. And so there, was, there were some things that were physical but indestructible. Now, to what extent uh, those bodies are, I don't know. The Bible doesn't go into detail about that. But during that time period, both of them had a physical body of some sort. It was uh, not a corruptible body, however, in the sense that it was aging and deteriorating like ours does. Uh, now look with me in Luke chapter, what did I say? Luke chapter 23? Alright, so look in Luke chapter number 23. We're going to find Jesus on the cross. And Jesus, if you remember, is crucified between two malefactors. One on the right, one on the left. Luke chapter 23, look with me in verse number 43. Luke chapter 23, verse number 43. And Jesus said unto him, speaking of the one who asked for mercy, He said, Verily I say unto thee, what's the next two words here? Today. Alright, that's crucial. Keep that in mind. He says, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Alright, so Jesus is on the cross, he dies, and they take him off the cross, put him in the tomb, and for three days and three nights, where is the Lord Jesus Christ? Where is he? He's in the heart of the earth, the Bible says. Okay, let's take a look at that and see. Um, uh, do I have that one? Yes, Matthew chapter number 12. Let's show it to you again from Scripture. Because again, the today is a, is a, is a critical piece of information there. Matthew chapter number 12 and verse number 40. For as Jonas, speaking here of Jonah, for as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the what? Heart of the earth. So where was the Old Testament place called Abraham's bosom or as Jesus called it paradise? Where was it located? It was also in the heart of the earth, wasn't it? Again, in close enough proximity that they could see and speak, but with the gulf fixed between them. All right? Now, when Jesus died, <laughs> he, went, uh, he went down and uh, was down there for three days and three nights, and he raises from the dead. And the Bible says in Revelation chapter number 1 that he now has the keys of death and hell, doesn't he? So there was a group of people, even though they were in paradise, they, their redemption had not yet been fulfilled until this point because the price had not been paid in full. And so they were in this place of paradise until such a time as that redemption was fulfilled through the payment, the pardon that was paid for their redemption, that being the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now turn with me to Matthew chapter 27. 
Matthew chapter number 27. <coughs> so when the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ was shed and the death of the Lord Jesus Christ took place, why was it important for the death to happen? Because in Hebrews chapter number 9, it says there is no testament unless there is the death of the testator. The New Testament did not begin until the moment the Lord Jesus Christ said, it is finished, and He gave up the Spirit. And when He did that, the Old Testament was done. The redemption was done, and the New Testament began. The payment had been made. Now, notice what it says here. I love this. I'm getting excited knowing where we're going here. Matthew chapter 27. Are you all excited yet? This is good, isn't it? This is good. Matthew chapter 27, verse number 51. Let's back up to verse number 50. Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost, and behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from top to the bottom, and the earth did quake, and the rocks did rent. Now let me stop there for a minute and let me, let me help you with something. The veil of the temple was the thing that separated the, the outer court or the, the, the inner court of the temple from the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies was a place that only one person was allowed to go one time a year, and that was the high priest. The high priest had to take two sacrifices that day. He had to wash himself in the laver. He had to put on new clothes, and he could not be touched by anyone until the time that he had sprinkled the blood on the mercy seat inside of the Holy of Holies, lest he would be contaminated, and he'd have to go back through the whole cleansing process again. He would wear a scarlet robe cord tied to his ankle with bells on the fringe of his garment. And he would walk into the Holy of Holies backwards first. He could not face the, the, the uh, mercy seat because the Shekinah glory of God, his presence was there resting on the mercy seat. And, and it would have killed him had he faced God's presence in its fullness. So he would back into the Holy of Holies and he would take the blood and sprinkle it on the mercy seat behind him. The reason they had the bells and the scarlet cord was if the priest was, un, uh, was contaminated, was unholy in some way, if he was not worthy of this or he failed to do something the way he was supposed to, the penalty of it was death. With it being inside the Holy of Holies, nobody could go in and get him out if he died. And so they had this cord for no other reason than the bells to hear if he died or if he lived. And they would pull him out. So this high priest, he would go one time into the Holy of Holies. When redemption happened, the price was paid. It no longer took a symbol of the blood of bulls and goats. It no longer took a high priest to come to the mercy seat of the Lord uh, uh, of, uh, of the, the, the tabernacle and to place it. God took that, that veil and he rent it in twain and says, you know what? Everybody can have access to God now because of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that, I don't know about y'all, that's pretty exciting. That'll make a Baptist shout right there. So look in verse number 52. And the graves, plural, were opened. This was, this was when the Lord died. When the redemption was finally paid. Look at this. And the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints which slept arose. Not all of them, it says many of them. And came out of the graves after His resurrection, and went into the holy city, and appeared unto many. This is pretty imp impressive. Here they are walking around. I don't know who, who all they were that, that were able to be here walking around. Could you imagine if you lived in that day and all of a sudden Elijah showed up? 
Not only did he show up, but he, he had dinner at your house for at least a few days here. I think, what did it say here? Uh, uh, appeared unto many and uh, they were with him. Um, I don't know if the Bible specifies the amount of time, but I think at least until the time that Christ ascended to heaven, which was just a few days later. So, so these bodies of these saints are, are, are resurrected. And I love this. Uh, look with me in Ephesians chapter number 4, and let's see why these bodies were resurrected. All right, Ephesians chapter number 4. In Ephesians chapter number 4, in verse number 8, Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now I want to stop right there for just a moment. <clears throat> he led captivity captive. This is what he said when he went on high. Uh, under, under the Old Testament, because the price of redemption had not yet been paid, but remission had already been granted because of their faith. The pardon had already been given there. They were just waiting for that price to be paid, to be given the, time, the opportunity to go to heaven and to be a part of that. They were, they were in captivity in paradise. Even though it was paradise, they were, they were locked there. The keys of death and hell that the Lord Jesus Christ holds now, there is no bondage there of us staying in there. And he went down to this place of paradise where these people could not go anywhere other than there, and he led them captive himself. He says, you know what, we're going on to heaven. So these saints who rose when he arose from the dead uh, are, are walking around. They're being seen of many people, the Bible says here. And notice in verse number, uh, as we get to verse number 8 of uh, Ephesians 4, we just read, Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now he that ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? That's where he went first. He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. Isn't that good? You like that? Now turn with me in, uh, to John chapter number 20. John chapter number 20. I love talking about this stuff. This is really good. John chapter number 20. I love this story. Jesus has just ridden, risen from the dead the first day of the week. Mary Magdalene comes to the tomb. He doesn't, she doesn't find him there. And she's looking around. She's weeping. And notice in verse number 11, But Mary stood without at the sepulcher, weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the sepulcher and seeth two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. And they say unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? And she saith unto them, Because they have taken my, away my Lord, and I know not where they have laid him. And when she had thus said, she turned herself back and saw Jesus standing and knew not that it was Jesus. Now, think about this for a moment. Of all the people in the world that should have known who Jesus was, don't you think Mary should have seen him and been able to recognize him? There was something about him physically, that caused her not to understand who he was. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said unto him, Sir, if thou have borne him hence, tell me where thou hast laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus saith unto her, Mary, and she turned herself, and saith unto him, Rabbi, which is to say, Master, and Jesus saith unto her, Touch me not, 
Notice this. This is the reason he gives. For I am not yet ascended to my Father. You say, Brother Greg, why is that significant? (laughs) Well, I'm glad you asked. Let's turn over to Hebrews chapter number 9. Oh, I love this. Then verily, the first covenant, speaking of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, Then verily, the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service in a worldly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle made, the first, wherein was the candlestick and the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which hath the golden censer. The ark of the covenant overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna and Aaron's rod that budded in the tables of the covenant. And over it the cherubims of glory shadowing the mercy seat, of which we cannot speak particularly. Now when these things were thus ordained, the priests went always into the first tabernacle, Accomplishing the service of God. But into the second went the high priest alone, once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the errors of the people. The Holy Ghost, this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, while as the first tabernacle was yet standing which was a figure for the time then present in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices, notice this, that could not make him that did the service perfect. Those old sacrifices, the tabernacle, later Solomon's temple, the second temple that was raised up after the Solomon's temple was destroyed, all it was was a type Those sacrifices never made them perfect. Verse number 10, which stood only in meats and drinks and diverse washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of reformation. But Christ, being come an high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by His own blood. He entered in once into the holy place, having obtained temporary, eternal. Just remission? No, no. Now redemption. The price has been paid in full. having obtained eternal redemption for us. The Bible tells us now, in fact, there are two other times in Scripture. The word paradise is only used three times. Once it's found as He's speaking to the thief on the cross. 
The second one is in 2 Corinthians chapter number 12. Let's take a moment to look at it. Because I love this. 2 Corinthians chapter number 12. Beginning in verse number 1, Paul says, It is not expedient for me, doubtless, to glory. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I knew a man in Christ above 14 years ago, whether in the body I cannot tell, or whether out of the body I cannot tell, God knoweth. Such an one caught, what's the next word? Up to the third heaven. And I knew such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell. God knoweth how that he was caught. What's the next word? Up into, where's paradise now? In the New Testament, absent from the body is present with the Lord. Well, what a truth. Look with me in Revelation chapter 2. The only other time this word paradise is used in our King James Bibles. Paul used it once, and John uses it once. Look with me in Revelation chapter 2, verse number 7. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. New Testament happened. The Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross. Nobody else had to go to the paradise that was in the heart of the earth. From that moment on, the moment we die, we wake up in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. What an amazing thought. Some people say, well, what happened to the paradise in the heart of the earth? I really don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us for sure. I do know the Bible says that because of the wickedness of man, that hell has had to enlarge itself. Perhaps it's enlarged into that area. I don't know. All I know now is that because there has been a one-time high priest that one time took his own precious blood, was not touched by human hands until he ascended to his Father. He told Mary, he said, Don't touch me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. Yet a few hours later, he meets with his disciples. And what does he tell his disciples to do? He said, Touch me. Handle me. We don't have a record of it in Scripture other than we know that it happened. Sometime between the time that he met with Mary in the garden and the time that he met with his disciples. He went up to the mercy seat. Not a mercy seat that was made by man's hands, but the mercy seat. Took his own blood. And for the first time in the history of man, the high priest was also the sacrifice. And he sprinkled his own blood on the mercy seat and became the surety of our salvation. Isn't it good to be saved and know we're saved? People that don't know that they're saved, they think, boy, I can lose my salvation. I don't know how they do it. I don't know how they do it. I hope tonight has been a help. I've tried to give you Scripture, tried to lay it out. Uh, Hopefully when we leave there won't be um, a lot of misunderstanding about it or somebody asks you or talks to you about it, you'll be able to say, you know what, let me show you some things the Bible has to say. And perhaps you can be a help to them also. All right?
Let's stand together and be dismissed in prayer. Father, we're so thankful for your word. We pray that you'll bless it and use it. Lord, what a joy it is in our hearts to see all that you have done for us. Lord, how special it is. The more I meditate and think on it, the more excited I get about it. And Lord, my heart just overflows with the love that it has for you. No, knowing that I did not deserve it. Nor anyone here, Lord, we know and we understand that. But because of your great love and your great mercy and your great grace, you've done it all for us. Lord, we're so grateful and thankful for that tonight. I pray that you would use the truth that we've looked at here this evening from your word to strengthen our faith. To help us to be unshakable in this thing of the gospel. To be able to be ready and to share uh, the gospel with other people who need to hear it, that we have a better understanding of what all has happened to purchase our salvation. We pray that you'll bless the time that we spend here together. Encourage our hearts this week as we endeavor to serve you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.